So here we are once again with Forming Our Faith. I'm Deacon Kevin, Director of Formation and Education at St. Anne Parish in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, in the beautiful and spacious Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma. In these episodes of the podcast, I'm taking a look at the Mass, which is the central act of worship for us as Catholics, because it's the top thing people in the parish tell me they want to know more about. I've spent the last couple episodes talking a little bit about the location of the Mass and why churches are built and adorned the way they are. There's something unique about a Catholic church that makes it clear that this place is like no other place, and that's because what happens in this place is done nowhere else. I was born into a Catholic family, and the practice of the Catholic faith has been part of my life for all of my life. In fact, some of the earliest memories I have were of being at Mass. But I know that's not the story of a lot of people who share the pews with us. Many have come to the Catholic Church or come back to the Catholic Church after time spent elsewhere or nowhere. And we have to admit that the fabric of the Mass looks and feels strange to people who are new to it. Imagine what it must be like for someone to come into one of our churches and go to Mass for the first time. It's got to be a strange kind of experience. The Mass is made up of elements that don't really happen in any other context in our lives. And it's easy to understand how people could be intimidated or overwhelmed by the strangeness of what happens. Add to it the fact that the Mass doesn't really explain itself. The liturgy is its own language, and if you don't speak that language, you don't understand what's going on. I'm going to suggest that the alienness of the Mass is not a bad thing. The Mass should be unlike anything else in the world because the Mass is not of this world. The point of the Mass is the worship and glorification of the God of the universe, which means it should have a mysterious quality to it. Mysteries cease to be mysterious when they're explained, and we don't explain the liturgy as it's happening because God is mysterious. Our world is awash in information, and we seek immediate gratification for any curiosity by accessing information. But you shouldn't treat the Mass as another subject you learn through Google. Sure, there are facts about the Mass, but the mystery of the Mass isn't a puzzle to be solved. It's like a husband and wife. They don't learn everything about each other all at once. Even though they're united, they're still mysterious to one another. And part of the delight of marriage is the continual revelation spouses make to each other. I think the Mass is kind of like that. God continues to reveal His presence, His love, His mercy, His justice to each of us in ways that defy textbook explanation. The Mass isn't a scientific formula. It's a poem. One of the goals this first set of podcasts seeks is for your next Mass to be the most profound Mass of your life. You were made to worship God, and you are called to be a hero. The Mass gives you your marching orders and sustains you with the grace to carry them out. Remember that the life of Christian discipleship is an adventure. It's supposed to be thrilling. So often we might think of the Mass as boring or irrelevant. And if these are true, the adventure we were made for has stalled. I used to be a high school theology teacher, and at the school where I taught, we had Mass for the entire school community at least once a month. After each month's Mass, I'd carve into my classes some time for students to ask questions about what happened during the Mass 
and for me to question them about their experience of the Mass. Usually, these were pretty good discussions, but one of the complaints I'd hear from time to time was that the Mass was boring. High school students have all sorts of reasons for why they find something boring, and you can probably predict some of them. The music, the liturgical rhythm that doesn't admit much variance, the cadence of the Mass that isn't up to their standards of vigor. But at the heart of many of the students' complaints about the Mass, I theorize that it all boiled down to their discomfort with mystery and their inability to allow themselves to be drawn in by mystery. They didn't know what to do with things that weren't immediately apparent, and the heart of the liturgy is not immediately apparent. Much of that discomfort, I suspect, is a symptom of their age, but I don't think that explains everything. There are people much older than adolescents who flee from mystery when they encounter it. One of my standard lines to high school students when we talk about this went something like, if you think the Mass is boring, you're going to have a really tough time with heaven because heaven is an eternal liturgy. That's the vision given to us in the book of Revelation. If you're uncomfortable with the mystery of the earthly liturgy, you're going to be really uncomfortable with the heavenly liturgy. I think Jesus Christ understood this human tendency to fly from what we don't immediately understand. It's why he tells the apostles at the Last Supper that what they do not understand now, they will understand when they receive the paraclete the Holy Spirit who leads us to all truth. And in his wisdom, he established and instituted the church and endowed it with his wisdom. So the church provides divine tools for us to approach and appreciate mystery so that we can receive the fruits of the mass. And perhaps the most powerful of these tools is silence. Silence is not a liturgical extra that's nice but optional as an addition to the mass. Silence is an essential part of the celebration, so much so that without it, we can't receive the fruits of the Mass. The Mass is not wholly silent, of course, but we'd be making a mistake if we equate silence merely with noiselessness. It's more than that. There could be complete absence of sound within the church, but that doesn't mean it's silent. Robert Seurat is a cardinal from the nation of Guinea in Africa, who for a while was the prefect of the Vatican's Office of Worship. So he's a guy who gets the liturgy. In 2016, he wrote a book called The Power of Silence Against the Dictatorship of Noise, which sought to re-articulate what sacred silence is and its place within the church's worship. I think the subtitle of Cardinal Seurat's book is revealing. Noise is a dictatorship. The word dictator conjures up all sorts of mental images, none of them good. We might think of the fascist dictators of the first half of the 20th century or the communist dictators of the second half of the 20th century. We might think of dictators in famished places who enrich themselves while their people starve. A dictator is a tyrant, and under tyranny, people are not free. Those are the images Cardinal Seurat means for us to see when we consider the role of noise in our lives. Noise is a dictator. It's a tyrant. It robs us of our freedom and shackles us to a will that is not our own. That's worth thinking about for a while. Our lives can be so easily dictated by this tyrant. Even worse, so frequently we can acquiesce to this tyranny 
We welcome it. We want it. And reason tells us that this is crazy. Who would welcome or desire slavery? But when it comes to noise, not only the noise that obstructs the ears, but the noise that blocks the mind and the imagination and the will and the soul, we can surrender so easily. Cardinal Seurat doesn't excuse this surrender. This is something we shouldn't do. But the point of his book isn't to blame us for allowing our lives to be noisy. It's to show us how sacred silence, especially in the Mass, is the antidote to noise. Noise is the problem. Mass is the solution. Against this tyranny of noise, Cardinal Sarara writes that we need to join a kind of resistance movement. And silence is that revolution against the tyranny of noise. I said in the last episode that Mass is revolutionary, and this is one of the ways. The Mass is not a human artifact because the Mass was not created by humans. It's on loan to us from its divine maker. It was engineered not in the enslaved minds of fallen men, but in the eternal heart of the Word of God. What marks it is not the chaos of the human condition, but the sublime tranquility of the triune God. Our participation in silence is a sharing in the harmony of God himself. I'm not sure we're fully aware of what this means for us as Catholics and what it means for us when we come to Mass. Entering into the church for Mass is not like entering a theater to watch a movie or into a doctor's office to have an illness diagnosed. Those are places where we have to be quiet and listen, but they're not silent spaces. They're in the world and of the world. I think it's important for us to appreciate that when we come to Mass, we are stepping out of this world and into another one, a world to which we belong, but in which we have not yet fully arrived. We are pilgrims who are sojourning to our true home, and Mass is a glimpse into that pilgrimage. Silence is our ticket that allows and enables us to travel to that world. This means that the door to the church is a kind of portal. On the outside is the world of noise. Through it is a copy of heaven characterized by sacred silence. What belongs outside needs to stay outside. This transition can be jarring. Think of a roller coaster whose design causes it to stop suddenly. Now think of a roller coaster whose design yanks you into a different plane of existence. That's what happens at Mass. And the door to the church is where that transition happens. In her wisdom, the church understands that we might not be ready or able to make this transition so abruptly. So many churches have a space where this can happen gradually. This is called the narthex. I love words. And if time and money were no object, I'd study etymology and philology to learn and appreciate the roots of the words we use. As it is, because money and time are objects, I have to approach words as an amateur, which means I have to dabble. In my dabbling, I've never encountered anything as fascinating as what the word narthex means and why we use this word for the transitional part of the church. Narthex is a Greek word that means giant fennel. The giant fennel is part of the carrot family, and it grows around the Mediterranean Sea. It can be used for food, but some varieties are poisonous. Giant fennel has a long, hollow stalk. And the fennel stalk was used in ancient Rome for disciplining mischievous schoolchildren. The narthex, then, was used for correction of those students who had gone astray. 
It was meant to reorient and refocus them towards the proper end of their studies, which was growth and knowledge. As a part of the church building, but not of the church proper, the narthex has the same function. It's meant to recollect us and direct us towards our end. We are kind of astray in the world and as disciples need to be brought to the foot of the master and teacher. And that's exactly what happens in the narthex. It delivers us to the door of the church. It's not that we're being beaten with fennel stalks to punish us for the noise we've invited into our lives, but that we realize that only within the church and the mass that's celebrated there are we doing what we were made for, to behold the face of God in full communion with him. We can't do that out in the world. The best we can do is to remember where we can do that and eagerly anticipate doing it. So the narthex has a disciplinary purpose. And we might assign negative connotation to discipline because discipline hurts. The root of discipline is the same root as disciple. It's about being a good student. This transitional space is meant to put us in the frame of mind to learn well, to be good students who follow the teacher's instructions. Stepping into the narthex should signal a change of mind and a change of heart a recovery of our calling as human beings and as children of God. So the narthex isn't just where we pick up the bulletin and say hello to people as we go into the church. It's a preparation for the divine lessons God is about to teach us. But that's only half of the story. By itself, I think that's fascinating, but it gets even better. Hesiod was an ancient Greek poet who lived maybe 700 years before Jesus was born. He wrote a poem describing the origins of all the Greek gods, and in it he says that when Prometheus stole fire and gave it to humans, he smuggled the divine flame in a stalk of narthex. Bound up in this legend, narthex signals a kind of communion between God and man and the bestowal of a divine gift upon humans. And think of what happens during Mass. God comes to meet us and bestows not just a, a divine gift, but himself as the gift of the divine to us. The narthex is a kind of preview of coming attractions where we are prepared for not just any old gift or even the gift of fire, but where we are prepared to receive God himself. This might make you a little uncomfortable, the idea that the church has incorporated into its very buildings a pre-Christian pagan myth. Now, we know Prometheus is no god. He's not even real. His story is just that, a story. But part of the genius of the early church was to use what people already knew and to show them how that knowledge was preparing them to receive the truth of the word made flesh. Greeks knew their mythology, and the evangelists and apostolic fathers used that knowledge as a tool to transmit the gospel. Today, I'm guessing most of the people who enter into our church for Mass don't know Greek mythology, so calling this space the narthex doesn't dredge up mythological memories. But 1,800 years ago, call, calling this space the narthex would cause people to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is God really going to come to us like Prometheus did in the myths? And the answer is yes, but not like you think. Greek mythology tells the stories of capricious, fickle, selfish gods who treat humanity, not to mention each other, with contempt, scorn, derision, and suspicion. The point of mythology 
is to try to explain how and why things, including humans, are the way they are. But the moral of the mythological story is not be like the gods. The gods are not admirable, and they are not sparkling examples of laudable and noble behavior. Prometheus might have restored to humans the gift of fire, but it wasn't because Prometheus loved humanity so much as because he wanted revenge against Zeus. The narthex did indeed signal communion between gods and men, but it's a communion wrapped up in rivalry, hatred, fear, and self-interest. What happens within the church is a communion with God, but with God who is loving and merciful and just and kind. It's communion with God who sacrificed himself for his creatures solely out of love. It's communion with God who made us without our consent, but who refuses to recreate us without our consent. It's our communion with God who deserves our worship, but who does not force us to worship him. It's communion with God who loves us infinitely and desires our love in return, but who also allows us to refuse that love. There's a point of reflection here, one I think couples who are preparing for marriage should consider. The parents who are preparing to welcome children into the world should consider. Men and women who are discerning priestly or religious vocations should consider. For love to be love, it has to be a free choice. Being compelled to love someone is not love. Being forced to love someone is not love. Love that is not actively willed and willed actively is not love at all. God could have created us not just with the capacity to receive and return his love, but with the guarantee that we do so. But he didn't. And it's because God, who is love, knows that love must be free. God died for us to show us his love, but we can still really choose whether or not we're going to receive and return that love. So the narthex retains some of the original mythological freight of the word, but because Christ makes all things new, the narthex in Catholic churches also conveys something that only Christ can. The moral of the gospel, unlike that of Greek mythology, is that we should be like God. We should strive in all things to be more and more like him who saved us and redeemed us. And what did Christ do to save us and redeem us? He made of himself an offering to God the Father. Now we get to it. In the last episode, I dove into the significance of pews in the church, and it took a long time to develop. I think something similar is going to happen here. Crossing from the natural world in which we live into the supernatural glimpse of heaven that takes place at the Mass takes place in and through the narthex, and it's in this space especially where we're reminded that we're about to commune with God that we're challenged to consider how we should be like Jesus, how we should make of ourselves an offering to God the Father. Now, I haven't said one word yet about what happens during the Mass itself, but we've happened upon the most important thing each of us brings to the Mass. The Mass is all about the worship of God, and worship requires sacrifice. To worship God the way God has instructed us to worship him requires an offering to be made. And when you come to Mass, what you offer is you. Jesus is the sacrificial victim, the unblemished Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sins of the world. 
But during the Mass, your participation in that sacrifice of Jesus Christ is to join yourself to it. It's to offer yourself to God in union with Jesus Christ himself. If you are baptized, you have the grace to make this offering, and at Mass, you must do so. Because God loves with a consuming love, God doesn't just want something from you, he wants you, full stop. Mass isn't just something we do to fulfill an obligation because the church says we have to. Mass is our opportunity to, to give God the one thing he really wants from us, us. It's one thing to say that that's the primary way we participate in the Mass. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. It's quite another thing to figure out, given the unique circumstances of each of our lives, how to do that. It's going to look differently for each person. It makes a ton of sense that something so crucial that our living out the life of grace hinges upon it is something we should most certainly take time to pray about, but also to pray about in the right way, with single-minded, earnest attention. And to achieve that attention, we need silence. We don't stay in the narthex for Mass because the narthex isn't a silent place. The kind of stillness we need to prepare ourselves to be oblations to God isn't found there. It's a place we pass through from the unfiltered noise of the world to the silence of heaven. And once we pass through it, we're kind of in another world. Once we enter into the church itself, the first thing most Catholics will do is to bless themselves with holy water, tracing the sign of the cross on their bodies and invoking the names of the persons of the Trinity. At the very least, this marks the full movement through the transitional space of the narthex and reminds us of the God with whom we will be communing. We name those persons of God because those are the persons we'll be encountering during the Mass. The Church uses water in a lot of different ways, but one of the things about water that deserves mention is that it's not the product of some human process. It comes directly from creation, and we use it without any sort of manufacture. During the Mass, bread and wine are used, but we don't use them the same way that they come from the earth. Wheat and grapes have to be transformed by human industry to become bread and wine. But water is just water, which means there's something more fundamental about water as a symbol. When we use water, we're using something that's sort of a direct product of creation. And understood this way, water is a direct symbol of God's eternality and his creative action, which requires nothing from us. Water shows up in the Bible all the time, both as a bringer of destruction and death and as an agent of cleansing and regeneration and renewal. The theologians say that water is an ambivalent symbol. It symbolizes several things, and it's not immediately clear which of those things it symbolizes. But here's the thing, and this is a very Catholic thing. It's not one or the other, it's both, and at the same time. So often in our Catholic faith, the answer to an either-or question is yes. Yes, water is simultaneously symbolic of death and life. Yes, water symbolizes destruction and regeneration. Yes, water means devastation and cleansing. And it means all of these things because of baptism. We'll talk about the sacraments in greater detail later, but for now, let's remember that in the waters of baptism, 
The sinful self, the heir of original sin from our first parents, is put to death, and by an act of the Holy Spirit, we are reborn into a newness of life that is not our own, but the very life of God. That's what happened to each of us when we were baptized. We died and rose again. So we already participate in some way in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In baptism, water was both tomb and womb. It brought an end and it brought to life. It both killed us and birthed us. When we enter the church, we use holy water to remind us of when we entered the church. Walking into the church for the first time happened at our baptism, whether we were the ones doing the walking or not. Just entering a church, and not even for Mass, is a symbol of our initiation into the people of God that is the church. And we mark ourselves the same way we were marked at baptism, with the sign of the cross in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Don't be casual about this the next time you enter the church and bless yourself. You're doing something that all the righteous men and women of the Old Testament yearned to do, but couldn't. You're declaring your dependence and allegiance to the triune God, who was revealed in fullness only with the advent of the Son of God, the Word made flesh. You are repeating on your body the sign that claimed you in your baptism and through which you will be commended at your funeral. You are making outwardly the character that has been permanently imprinted on your soul. This is not just a thing to do. It's a renewal of your allegiance to the God who made and saves and sustains you. It's a thanksgiving for that creation and salvation and sustenance. It's your conscription into God's holy people who are charged with the responsibility to make their lives a visible gospel. It's your dignity and your destiny. I spoke in the first episode about how Catholic churches are built and why that matters. Here, I'll just say that in addition to being a gospel in stone and glass and brick and wood, the church is also a copy of heaven. The heavenly architecture described for us in sacred scripture is reproduced somehow in the architecture of the church. I'm sure you've noticed, for instance, the churches tend to be built on an exaggerated vertical scale. Why do we have all that space up there in our churches, space that doesn't get used for anything because it's inaccessible? The answer is that that space up there is in fact being used, but not by us. Hebrews 12 tells us that we are surrounded by a cloud of many witnesses, and building tall churches is a reminder that when we go to Mass, we're not alone. Countless angels and saints are present to the earthly liturgy, and building up is a way to remind us that we accommodate their presence. I know there are a lot of people who look at Catholic churches and think that the designs are ridiculous. They're inefficient. They're more expensive than they have to be because they include elements that see form triumph over function. Imagine the opinion of an HVAC contractor about a design that has 200,000 cubic feet of extra empty space. Father, you're going to spend a lot of money to cool and to heat that space, and you're not even using it. And I'm not slamming contractors here. That's an insight you're paying them to make. But the church is not about efficiency. It's one thing to say this in matters of architecture, but there's something deeper about it too. 
We live in a world where almost everything we do is subject to a kind of cost-benefit analysis that measures the return on our investment. If something is too costly or too time-consuming, or the goods we receive aren't good enough, we just don't do it because it's not worth it. We are utilitarian in so many ways that most of us, myself included, don't recognize. This can creep into our attitudes about worship. And I get it. There are only 168 hours in the week. What benefit do I get from what I do during that time, and how does that compare to the benefit I'd get from doing something else? This is how we think, and I'm not saying it's bad, but I think I am saying that this leaves something important out. After God created the world in the book of Genesis, he rested. After the Israelites escaped from Egypt and received the law at Mount Sinai, the third commandment told the Israelites to be like God and to rest on the seventh day. In essence, God is telling his people, A, that they should be like him, and B, that they should waste some time. The Sabbath is all about refraining from the work that we think is productive and pursuing things that are simply delightful. It doesn't grow our wealth or investment portfolio, but that doesn't mean it's not beneficial. Mass is kind of like that. The ROI doesn't look like it's very high, at least from a secular point of view, but there's unassailable spiritual benefit both for us and for the world. When we come to Mass, we're making a kind of investment in a different kind of good. If it is indeed wasting time, then it's the right kind of waste and for the right reasons. Usually when we come into the church and prepare ourselves in silence for the Mass, we do so while kneeling. People who have come to Catholic Mass for the first time can often get tripped up by the Catholic calisthenics, the up and down and up and kneel of the liturgy. Bodily postures have a place in the liturgy, and they're not random or happenstance. Standing or kneeling communicate different things, and when we do them during the liturgy, there's a ritual significance to the posture that would impoverish the ritual were it to be absent. Kneeling is a gesture of supplication. When you're asking for something from someone who has the power to give it, but also the ability to withhold it, kneeling is a sign of humility. Before Mass begins, we're asking God to show us how to make ourselves as an offering to him. We're asking for a grace from the source of all grace. And to demand a grace would be wholly inappropriate. Demands are made by a superior to an inferior, and a superior sits. We don't ask when sitting because we're not God's superior. But we also don't stand. Standing is the posture of soldiers in formation, and soldiers don't ask for things. We kneel when we beg in prayer because it shows that we know we're asking for something and that the one who can grant the request is greater than we are. Because each of the parts of the Mass have an accompanying posture, it's worthwhile to explore why that's so. For example, we sit for the readings, we stand for the Gospel, and we kneel for the consecration. It's almost as if, as the presence of God draws nearer and nearer to us, we abase ourselves with gestures of humility more and more. But let's put a pin in that and revisit it as we go through the Mass. For now, let's leave it at kneeling in prayer as a gesture that prepares us to participate in the sacrifice that is the sacred liturgy. I don't want to speak for anyone else, but here might be the greatest weakness in my own liturgical life. 
When I come into the church before Mass, and it doesn't matter if it's a Mass at which I'm assisting as a deacon or attending as part of the assembly, there are some times when my prayer before Mass is minimal in both content and length. And there are more times when my prayer is zero. And that should give me pause. If I'm not prepared to commune with God by offering to Him my whole self, how can I commune with Him? A lot of times, the focus can be on the action of the Mass, and we forget that if we're not ready for Mass to begin, we're not in a position to receive its fruits. Well, we've gotten right up to when Mass is about to begin, and that's where we'll begin next time. Remember the point of this series of podcasts, for your next Mass to be the best, the most grace-filled, the most unitive Mass you've ever been to. And remember the motto of forming our faith, never, ever settle for anything less than the heroism for which you were born.